0: Chapter fifty four Part two of A Popular History of France from the Earliest Times Volume six This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. A Popular History of France from the Earliest Times Volume six by Francois Guizot. Translated by Robert Black. Chapter fifty four Louis the Fifteenth. The Seven Years' War. The Ministry of the Duke of Choiseul. Seventeen forty eight to seventeen seventy four. Part two. The new commander-in-chief of the king's armies, prince of the blood, brother of the late Monsieur le Duc, abbot commendatory of Saint Germain des Prés, general of the Benedictines, end quote, as the soldiers said, had brought into Germany, together with the favour of Madame de Pompadour, upright intentions, a sincere desire to restore discipline, and some great allusions about himself. Quote, "'I am very impatient, I do assure you, to be on the other side of the Rhine,' wrote Count Clermont to Marshal Belle-Isle. "'All the country about here is infested by runaway soldiers, convalescents, camp-followers, all sorts of understrappers who commit fearful crimes. Not a single officer does his duty. They are the first to pillage. All the army ought to be put under escort and in detachments, and then there would have to be escorts for those escorts.' I hang, I imprison, but as we march by cantonments and the regimental, or particuliers, officers are the first to show a bad example, the punishments are neither sufficiently known nor sufficiently seen. Everything smacks of indiscipline, of disgust at the king's service, and of asperity towards oneself. I see with pain that it will be indispensable to put in practice the most violent and the harshest measures." The king's army, meanwhile, was continuing to fall back. A general outcry arose at Paris against the general's supineness. On the 23rd of June, he was surprised by Duke Ferdinand of Brunswick in the strong position of Crévelde, which he had occupied for two days past. The reserves did not advance in time. Orders to retreat were given too soon. The battle was lost without disaster and without any rout. The general was lost as well as the battle. it is certain says the marquis of vogel in his narrative of the affair that count clermont was at table in his headquarters of Veschelen at one o'clock that he had lost the battle before six arrived at Rousse at half-past ten and went to bed at midnight that is doing a great deal in a short time the count of gisard son of marshal belle a young officer of the greatest promise had been killed at Créveld count clermont was superseded by the marquis of contade the army murmured they had no confidence in their leaders at versailles abbe de berny who had lately become a cardinal paid by his disgrace for the persistency he had shown in advising peace he was chatting with m de Starenberg, the austrian ambassador when he received a letter from the king sending him off to his abbey of saint mandard de soissons he continued the conversation without changing countenance and then breaking off the conversation just as the ambassador was beginning to speak of business it is no longer to me sir he said that you must explain yourself on these great topics i have just received my dismissal from his majesty with the same coolness he quitted the court and returned pending his embassy to rome to those elegant intellectual pleasures which suited him better than the crushing weight of a ministry in disastrous times under an indolent and vain-minded monarch who was governed by a woman as headstrong as she was frivolous and depraved madame de pompadour had just procured for herself a support in her obstinate bellicosity cardinal berny was superseded in the ministry of foreign affairs by count steinville who was created duke of Choiseul, after the death of marshal belle he exchanged the office for that of minister of war with it he combined the ministry of the marine the foreign affairs were intrusted to the duke of pralin his cousin the power rested almost entirely in the hands of the duke of Choiseul. of high birth clever bold ambitious he had but lately aspired to couple the splendor of successes in the fashionable world with the serious preoccupations of politics his marriage with Mademoiselle Crozat, a wealthy heiress, amiable and very much smitten with him, had strengthened his position. Elevated to the ministry by Madame de Pompadour, and as yet promoting her views, he nevertheless gave signs of an independent spirit and a proud character, capable of exercising authority firmly in the presence and the teeth of all obstacles. France hoped to find once more in M. de Choiseul a great minister nor were her hopes destined to be completely deceived a new and secret treaty had just riveted the alliance between france and austria m de choiseul was at the same time dreaming of attacking england in her own very home thus dealing her the most formidable of blows the preparations were considerable m de soubise was recalled from germany to direct the army of invasion he was to be seconded in his command by the duke of aiguillon to whom rightly or wrongly was attributed the honor of having repulsed in the preceding year an attempt of the english at a descent upon the coasts of brittany the expedition was ready there was nothing to wait for save the moment to go out of port but admiral hawke was cruising before brest it was only in the month of november seventeen fifty nine that the marquis of conflans who commanded the fleet could put to sea with twenty-one vessels finding himself at once pursued by the english squadron he sought shelter in the difficult channels at the mouth of the vilaine the english dashed in after him a partial engagement which ensued was unfavourable and the commander of the french rear-guard monsieur saint-andre du verger allowed himself to be knocked to pieces by the enemy's guns in order to cover the retreat the admiral ran ashore in the bay of le croissy and burned his own vessel Seven ships remained blockaded in the Vilaine. M. de Conflans' job, as the sailors called it at the time, was equivalent to a battle lost without the chances and the honour of the struggle. The English navy was triumphant on every sea, and even in French waters. The commencement of the campaign of 1759 had been brilliant in Germany. The Duke of Broly had successfully repulsed the attack made by Ferdinand of Brunswick on his positions at Bergen the prince had been obliged to retire. The two armies, united under M. de Contade, invaded Hesse and moved upon the Vesser. They were occupying Minden when Duke Ferdinand threw himself upon them on the 1st of August. The action of the two French generals was badly combined, and the rout was complete. It was the moment of Canada's last efforts, and the echo of that glorious death-rattle reached even to Versailles the duke of choiseul had on the nineteenth of february replied to a desperate appeal from montcalm i am very sorry to have to send you word that you must not expect any reinforcements to say nothing of their increasing the dearth of provisions of which you have had only too much experience hitherto there would be great fear of their being intercepted by the english on the passage and as the king could never send you aid proportionate to the forces which the english are in a position to oppose to you the efforts made here to procure it for you would have no other effect than to rouse the ministry in london to make still more considerable ones in order to preserve the superiority it has acquired in that part of the continent the necessity for peace was beginning to be admitted even in madame de pompadour's little cabinets maria theresa however was in no hurry to enter into negotiations her enemy seemed to be bending at last beneath the weight of the double Austrian and Russian attack. At one time, Frederick had thought that he saw all Germany rallying round him. Now, beaten and cantoned in Saxony, with the Austrians in front of him, during the winter of 1760 he was everywhere seeking alliances and finding himself everywhere rejected. Quote, I have but two allies left, he would say, valor and perseverance. End quote repeated victories gained at the sword's point by dint of boldness and in the extremity of peril could not even protect berlin the capital of prussia found itself constrained to open its gates to the enemy on the sole condition that the regiments of cossacks should not pass the line of enclosure when the regular troops withdrew the generals had not been able to prevent the city from being pillaged the heroic efforts of the king of prussia ended merely in preserving to him a foothold in saxony the russians occupied poland marshal brely on becoming general-in-chief of the french army had succeeded in holding his own in hesse he frequently made hanover anxious to turn his attention elsewhere, and in hopes of deciding the french to quit germany the hereditary prince of brunswick attempted a diversion on the lower rhine he laid siege to vessel whilst the english were preparing for a descent at antwerp marshal Broglie detached m de Castries to protect the city the french corps had just arrived it was bivouacking on the night between the fifteenth and sixteenth of october chevalier dessat captain in the regiment of auvergne was sent to reconnoitre he had advanced some distance from his men and happened to stumble upon a large force of the enemy the Prince of Brunswick was preparing to attack. All the muskets covered the young captain. Quote, Stir, and thou art a dead man," muttered threatening voices. Without replying, M. d'Assas collected all his strength and shouted, quote, "Auvergne, here are the foe!" End quote. At the same instant, he fell, pierced by twenty balls. Accounts differ, but this is the tradition of the Assas family. The action thus begun was a glorious one the hereditary prince was obliged to abandon the siege of vessel and to recross the rhine the french divisions maintained their positions the war went on as bloodily as monotonously and fruitlessly but the face of europe had lately altered the old king george the second who died on the twenty fifth of september seventeen sixty had been succeeded on the throne of england by his grandson george the third aged twenty-two the first really native sovereign who had been called to reign over England since the fall of the Stuarts. George I and George II were Germans in their feelings and their manners as well as their language. The politic wisdom of the English people had put up with them, but not without effort and ill-humor. The accession of the young king was greeted with transport. Pitt still reigned over Parliament and over England, governing a free country sovereign master-like. His haughty prejudice against France still ruled all the decisions of the English government, but Lord Bute, the young monarch's adviser, was already whispering Pacific counsels destined ere long to bear fruit. Pitt's dominion was tottering when the first overtures of peace arrived in London. The Duke of Choiseul proposed a Congress. He at the same time negotiated directly with England. Whilst Pitt kept his answer waiting, an English squadron blockaded Belle-Ile, and the governor, M. de Sainte-Croix, left without relief, was forced to capitulate after an heroic resistance. When the conditions demanded by England were at last transmitted to Versailles, the English flag was floating over the citadel of belle The mouth of the Loire and of the Vilaine was blockaded. The arrogant pretensions of Mr. Pitt stopped at nothing short of preserving the conquest of England in both hemispheres he claimed besides the demolition of dunkirk quote, as a memorial forever of the yoke imposed upon france end quote. completely separating the interests of england from those of the german allies he did not even reply to the proposals of m de choiseul as to the evacuation of hesse and hanover mistress of the sea england intended to enjoy alone the fruits of her victories the parleys were prolonged and m de choiseul seemed to be resigned to the bitterest pill of concession when a new actor came upon the scene of negotiation france no longer stood isolated face to face with triumphant england the younger branch of the house of bourbon cast into the scale the weight of its two crowns and the resources of its navy the king of spain ferdinand the sixth who died on the tenth of august seventeen fifty nine had not left any children his brother charles the third king of naples had succeeded him he brought to the throne of spain a more lively intelligence than that of the deceased king a great aversion for england of which he had but lately had cause to complain and the traditional attachment of his race to the interests and the glory of france the duke of choiseul managed to take skilful advantage of this disposition at the moment when mr pitt was haughtily rejecting the modest ultimatum of the french minister the treaty between france and spain known by the name of family pact was signed at paris august fifteenth seventeen fifty one never had closer alliance been concluded between the two courts even at the time when louis the fourteenth placed his grandson upon the throne of spain it was that intimate union between all the branches of the house of bourbon which had but lately been the great king's conception and which had cost him so many efforts and so much blood for the first time it was becoming favorable to France. The noble and patriotic idea of M. de Choiseul found an echo in the soul of the King of Spain. The French navy, ruined and humiliated, the French colonies, threatened and all but lost, found faithful support in the forces of Spain, recruited as they were by a long peace. The King of the Two Sicilies and the Infante Duke of Parma entered into the offensive and defensive alliance but it was not open to any other power in Europe to be admitted to this family union, cemented by common interests more potent and more durable than the transitory combinations of policy. In all the ports of Spain ships were preparing to put to sea. Charles III had undertaken to declare war against the English if peace were not concluded before the 1st of May, 1762. France promised in that case to cede to him the island of Minorca. All negotiations with England were broken off. On the 20th of September, Mr. Pitt recalled his ambassador. This was his last act of power and animosity. He at the same time proposed to the Council of George the Third to include Spain forthwith in the hostilities. Lord Bute opposed this. He was supported by the young king, as well as by the majority of the ministers. Pitt at once sent in his resignation, which was accepted. Lord Bute and the Tories came into power though more moderate in their intentions they were as yet urged forward by popular violence and dared not suddenly alter the line of conduct the family pact had raised the hopes always an easy task of france the national impulse inclined towards the amelioration of the navy the estates of languedoc were the first in the field offering the king a ship of war their example was everywhere followed sixteen ships first rates were before long in course of construction a donation from the great political or financial bodies there were besides private subscriptions amounting to thirteen millions the duke of choiseul sought out commanders even amongst the mercantile marine and everywhere showed himself favorable to blue officers as the appellation then was of those whose birth excluded them from the navy corps the knowledge of the nobly born often left a great deal to be desired, whatever may have been their courage and devotion. This was a last generous effort on behalf of the shreds of France's perishing colonies. The English government did not give it time to bear fruit. In the month of January seventeen sixty two, it declared war against Spain. Before the year had rolled by, Cuba was in the hands of the English. The Philippines were ravaged, and the galleons, laden with Spanish gold, captured by British ships. The unhappy fate of France had involved her generous ally. The campaign attempted against Portugal, always hand in hand with England, had not been attended with any result. Martinique had shared the lot of Guadeloupe, lately conquered by the English after an heroic resistance. Canada and India had at last succumbed. War dragged its slow length along in Germany. The brief elevation of the young Tsar, Peter Third, a passionate admirer of the great Frederick, had delivered the King of Prussia from a dangerous enemy, and promised to give him an ally equally trusty and potent. France was exhausted, Spain discontented and angry. Negotiations recommenced on what disastrous conditions for the French colonies in both hemispheres has already been remarked. In Germany, the places and districts occupied by France were to be restored, Lord Bute, like his great rival, required the destruction of the port of Dunkirk. This was not enough for the persistent animosity of Pitt. The preliminaries of peace had been already signed at Fontainebleau on the 3rd of November, 1762. When they were communicated to Parliament, the fallen minister, still the nation's idol and the real head of the people, had himself carried to the House of Commons. He was ill, suffering from a violent attack of gout, two of his friends led him with difficulty to his place and supported him during his long speech being exhausted he sat down towards the end contrary to all the usages of the house without however having once faltered in his attacks upon a peace too easily made of which it was due to him that england was able to dictate the conditions it is as a maritime power he exclaimed that france is chiefly if not exclusively formidable to us and the ardor of his spirit restored to his enfeebled voice the dread tones which parliament and the nation had been wont to hear quote, what we gain in this respect is doubly precious from the loss that results to her america sir was conquered in germany now you are leaving to france a possibility of restoring her navy quote. the peace was signed however not without ill-humor on the part of england but with a secret feeling of relief the burdens which weighed upon the country had been increasing every year in seventeen sixty two lord bute had obtained from parliament four hundred and fifty millions or eighteen million pounds to keep up the war quote, i wanted the peace to be a serious and a durable one said the english minister in reply to pitt's attacks if we had increased our demands it would have been neither the one nor the other End quote. M. de Choiseul submitted in despair to the consequences of the long continued errors committed by the government of Louis the Fifteenth. Were I master, said he, we would be to the English what Spain was to the Moors. If this course were taken, England would be destroyed in thirty years from now. The king was a better judge of his weakness and of the general exhaustion. The peace we have just made is neither a good one nor a glorious one. Nobody sees that better than I, he said in his private correspondence, but under such unhappy circumstances it could not be better, and I answer for it that if we had continued the war we should have made a still worse one next year. All the patriotic courage and zeal of the Duke of Choiseul, all the tardy impulse springing from the nation's anxieties, could not suffice even to palliate the consequences of so many years' ignorance feebleness and incapacity in succession. Prussia and Austria henceforth were left to confront one another, the only actors really interested in the original struggle, the last to quit the battlefield onto which they had dragged their allies. By an unexpected turn of luck, Frederick II had for a moment seen Russia becoming his ally. A fresh blow came to wrest him from this powerful support. The Tsarina Catherine II, the Second. Princess of Anhalt Zerbst and wife of the Tsar Peter the Third, being on bad terms with her husband and in dread of his wrath, had managed to take advantage of the young Tsar's imprudence in order to excite a mutiny amongst the soldiers. He had been deposed and died before long in prison. Catherine was proclaimed in his place. With her accession to the throne there commenced for Russia a new policy, equally bold and astute having for its sole aim unscrupulously and shamelessly pursued the aggrandizement and consolidation of the imperial power russia became neutral in the strife between prussia and austria the two sovereigns left without allies and with their dominions drained of men and money agreed to a mutual exchange of their conquests the boundaries of their territories once more became as they had been before the seven years war frederick calculated at more than eight hundred thousand men the losses caused to the belligerents by this obstinate and resultless struggle the fruit of wicked ambition or culpable weaknesses on the part of governments thanks to the indomitable energy and the equally zealous and unscrupulous ability of the man who had directed her counsels during the greater part of the war england alone came triumphant out of the strife she had won india forever and for some years at least civilized america almost in its entirety obeyed her laws she had won what France had lost, not by superiority of arms or even of generals, but by the natural and proper force of a free people, ably and liberally governed. The position of France abroad at the end of the Seven Years' War was as painful as it was humiliating. Her position at home was still more serious, and the deep-lying source of all the reverses which had come to overwhelm the French slowly lessened by the faults and misfortunes of king louis the later years the kingly authority which had fallen under louis the fifteenth into hands as feeble as they were corrupt was ceasing to inspire the nation with the respect necessary for the working of personal power public opinion was no longer content to accuse the favorite and the ministers it was beginning to make the king responsible for the evils suffered and apprehended people waited in vain for a decision of the crown to put a stop to the incessantly renewed struggles between the parliament and the clergy disquieted at one and the same time by the philosophical tendencies which were beginning to spread in men's minds and by the comptroller-general Machaux's projects for exacting payment of the imposts upon ecclesiastical revenues the archbishop of paris christopher de beaumont and the bishop of mirepoix boyer who was in charge of the benefice list conceived the idea of stifling these dangerous symptoms by an imprudent recourse to the spiritual severities so much dreaded but lately by the people several times over the last sacraments were denied to the dying who had declined to subscribe to the bull unigenitus a clumsy measure which was sure to excite public feeling and revive the pretensions of the parliaments to the surveillance in the last resort over the government of the church jansenism fallen and persecuted but still living in the depths of souls numbered amongst the ranks of the magistracy as well as in the university of paris many secret partisans several parish priests had writs of personal seizure issued against them and their goods were confiscated decrees succeeded decrees in spite of the king's feeble opposition the struggle was extending and reaching to the whole of france on the twenty second of february seventeen fifty three the parliament of paris received orders to suspend all the proceedings they had commenced on the ground of refusals of the sacraments the king did not consent even to receive the representations by the unanimous vote of the hundred and fifty-eight members sitting on the court parliament determined to give up all service until the king should be pleased to listen we declare said the representation that our zeal is boundless and that we feel sufficient courage to fall victims to our fidelity the court could not serve without being wanting to their duties and betraying their oaths indolent and indifferent as he was king louis the fifteenth acted as seldom and as slowly as he could he did not like strife and gladly saw the belligerents exhausting against one another their strength and their wrath on principle however and from youthful tradition he had never felt any liking for the parliaments The long robes and the clergy are always at daggers drawn, he would say to Madame de Pompadour. They drive me distracted with their quarrels, but I detest the long robes by far the most. My clergy, at bottom, are attached to me and faithful to me. The others would like to put me in tutelage. They will end by ruining the state. They are a pack of republicans. However, things will last my time at any rate. Severe measures against the parliament were decided upon in council four magistrates were arrested and sent to fortresses all the presidents councillors of inquests and of requests were exiled the grand chamber which alone was spared refused to administer justice being transferred to pontoise it persisted in its refusal it was necessary to form a king's chamber installed at the louvre all the inferior jurisdictions refused to accept its decrees after a year's strife the parliament returned in triumph to paris in the month of august seventeen fifty four the clergy received orders not to require from the dying any theological adhesion next year the archbishop of paris who had paid no attention to the prohibition was exiled in his turn thus by mutually weakening each other the great powers and the great influences in the state were wasting away the reverses of the french arms the loss of their colonies and the humiliating peace of paris aggravated the discontent in default of good government the people are often satisfied with glory this consolation to which the french nation had but lately been accustomed failed it all at once mental irritation for a long time silently brooding cantoned in the writings of philosophers and in the quatrains of rhymesters was beginning to spread and show itself amongst the nation it sought throughout the state an object for its wrath the powerful society of the Jesuits was the first to bear all the brunt of it. A French Jesuit, Father La Vallette, had founded a commercial house at Martinique. Ruined by the war, he had become bankrupt to the extent of three millions. The order having refused to pay, it was condemned by the Parliament to do so. The responsibility was declared to extend to all the members of the Institute, and public opinion triumphed over the condemnation with a quasi indecent joy says the advocate barbier nor was it content with this legitimate satisfaction one of the courts which had until lately been most devoted to the society of jesus had just set an example of severity in seventeen fifty nine the jesuits had been driven from portugal by the marquis of pombal king joseph i's all-powerful minister their goods had been confiscated and their principal Malagrida handed over to the inquisition had just been burned as a heretic on september twentieth seventeen sixty one the portuguese jesuits had been feebly defended by the grandees the clergy were hostile to them in france their enemies showed themselves bolder than their defenders proudly convinced of the justice of their cause the fathers had declined the jurisdiction of the grand council to which they had a right as all ecclesiastical bodies had and they had consented to hand over to the parliament the registers of their constitutions, up to that time carefully concealed from the eyes of the profane. The skilful and clear-sighted hostility of the magistrates was employed upon the articles of this code, so stringently framed of yore by enthusiastic souls and powerful minds, forgetful or disdainful of the sacred rights of human liberty. All the services rendered by the Jesuits to the cause of religion and civilization appear defaced forgotten were their great missionary enterprises their founders and their martyrs in order to set forth simply their insatiable ambition their thirst after power their easy compromises with evil passions condemned by the christian faith the assaults of the philosophers had borne their fruit in the public mind the old rancour of the jansenists imperceptibly promoted the severe inquiry openly conducted by the magistrates madame de pompadour dreaded the influence of the jesuits religious fears might at any time be aroused again in the soul of louis the fifteenth the dauphin who had been constantly faithful to them sought in vain to plead their cause with the king he had attacked the duke of choiseul the latter so far forgot himself it is asserted as to say to the prince sir i may have the misfortune to be your subject but i will never be your servant the minister had hitherto maintained a prudent reserve. He henceforth joined the favorite and the parliament against the Jesuits. On the sixth of August seventeen sixty one, the parliament of Paris delivered a decree ordering the Jesuits to appear at the end of a year for the definite judgment upon their constitutions. Pending the judicial decision, all their colleges were closed. King Louis the fifteenth still hesitated from natural indolence and from a remembrance of Cardinal Fleury's maxims. Quote, The Jesuits, the old minister would often say, are bad masters, but you can make them useful tools. An ecclesiastical commission was convoked. With the exception of the bishop of Soissons, the prelates all showed themselves favorable to the Jesuits and careless of the old Gallican liberties. On their advice, the king sent a proposal to Rome for certain modifications in the constitutions of the order. Father Ricci, general of the Jesuits, answered haughtily, let them be as they are, or not be, or sint ut sunt aut non sunt. Their enemies in France accepted the challenge. On the 6th of August, 1762, a decree of the Parliament of Paris, soon confirmed by the majority of the sovereign courts, declared that there was danger or abus in the bulls, briefs, and constitutions of the society, pronounced its dissolution, forbade its members to wear the dress and to continue living in common under the sway of the general and other superiors orders were given to close all the jesuit houses the principle of religious liberty which had been so long ignored and was at last beginning to dawn on men's minds was gaining its first serious victory by despoiling the jesuits in their turn of that liberty for the long-continued wrongs whereof they were called to account a strange and striking reaction in human affairs the condemnation of the Jesuits was the precursory sign of the violence and injustice which were soon to be committed in the name of the most sacred rights and liberties, long violated with impunity by arbitrary power. Vaguely and without taking the trouble to go to the bottom of his impression, Louis the Fifteenth felt that the parliaments and the philosophers were dealing him a mortal blow, whilst appearing to strike the Jesuits. He stood out a long while, leaving the quarrel to become embittered and public opinion to wax wroth at his indecision there is a hand-to-mouth administration said an anonymous letter addressed to the king and madame de pompadour but there is no longer any hope of government a time will come when the people's eyes will be opened and peradventure that time is approaching the persistency of the duke of choiseul carried the day at last an edict of december seventeen sixty four declared that the society no longer existed in france that it would merely be permitted to those who composed it to live privately in the king's dominions under the spiritual authority of the local ordinaries whilst conforming to the laws of the realm four thousand jesuits found themselves affected by this decree some left france others remained still in their families assuming the secular dress it will be great fun to see father perusseau turned abbe said louis the fifteenth as he signed the fatal edict quote, the parliaments fancy they are serving religion by this measure wrote d'alembert to voltaire but they are serving reason without any notion of it they are the executioners on behalf of philosophy whose orders they are executing without knowing it End quote. the destruction of the jesuits served neither religion nor reason for it was contrary to justice as well as to liberty It was the wages and the bitter fruit of a long series of wrongs and iniquities committed but lately in the name of religion against justice and liberty end of chapter fifty four part two